this is Secret Sauce, a podcast about the secret ingredients and artwork in life. I'm your host, Becca Borelli. I'm also an illustrator in Austin, Texas, and this episode is entitled Art Will Save Them, which, yes, is a play off of the episode a few weeks ago, Art Will Save Us, and totally different topic, somewhat connected and the today is going to be a standalone episode. So if you didn't listen to Art Will Save Us, that's okay. You're more than welcome to go back and listen to it if you haven't, because a lot of the ideas there are a great precursor for this podcast episode, but not a requirement. I feel like this podcast episode is going to function really well, no matter no matter what you've listened to prior to it. Um, But I wanted to mention that because I know a lot of you listening to this have listened to that episode. And in that episode, we talked a little bit about a new definition for artistry, right? Art isn't just a vase anymore. And of course, a vase is a metaphor for an object. Like, of course, art is an object. Of course, it's a painting. Of course, it's a song. Of course, it's a poem. But increasingly, I think humanity is starting to expand its definition of a lot of things and art is one of them and one of the ways that I believe we're seeing an expansion around artistry is that we can be artists in our day-to-day lives all of the time doing any single thing it just depends on the way that we're interacting with that thing I use a lot of examples and art will save us to articulate this, but one of them that happened recently to me that just made me laugh, and I just was so delighted by it that I couldn't wait to share it in this episode. Um, Jason and I took Brayden um, with his parents out to Johnson City, which is about 45 minutes west of Austin. For those of you that live locally, you're familiar. And at Christmas time, they have probably one of the largest Christmas light displays in the country and it's not necessarily the most expansive but as far as number of christmas lights there's about 10 million (laughs) y'all 10 million christmas lights this display is so incredibly bright that it's been picked up on satellites like it's it's shocking how bright it is and it and because it's so bright and so condensed there is this sense when you see it that you are in in a magical place more than any other Christmas light display I've ever been a part of. And we love going here. (laughs) Like it is free to the public. It's in a small town. So it's never like insanely crowded. We have dinner nearby. We walk over. Brayden is just like, this is the first year he's two. We've gone ever since he was born. This is the first year though, that he could walk and just run around and experience it for himself and none of this context really matters to the story except to sort of lay the, the framework for our experience that that led to this sort of artistic moment. So we decide we want a photo together. My mother-in-law like pulls this woman aside and asks if she could take a picture. And she has two teenage sons with her. And she says, you know what? You should let one of them do it. They're so much better with phones. So this young man, I, I would say he was probably 16 or 17, takes Um, our phone and he's taking a bunch of pictures of us and I I catch a glimpse of this but it doesn't register until later he like as he's taking photos of us he makes it kind of a weird face and then it's over 
And as he's walking away, his mother goes, did you take a selfie? You took a selfie, didn't you? And she turns to us and she goes, I'm sorry if he took a selfie. And we were kind of like, what? Like, it, it wasn't even computing. Like, what do you mean a selfie? Like, so we're going through like a few dozen photos he's taken of us. And sure enough, at the very end is a picture of him smiling, this devilish smile, like really close up because he's holding the camera close to his face. You know, what he had done last minute was he took a bunch of photos of us and then he tapped the camera to take a portrait shot of himself, you know, sort of incognito. And apparently this is a calling card of her son because she knew it. Like this mother immediately was like, I know you did this (laughs) to these strangers camera. And this maybe seems sort of arbitrary and silly, but every single one of us, like as we're like leaning over my mother-in-law's shoulder, like looking at all these photos, we all burst out in belly laughter. (laughs) Like... We went from just like sort of status quo energy to just joy, joyous laughing at this teenage boy's face. And it was very intentional, right? Like clearly he does this all the time. And it's because, and it it was very clear to us that it was because of this dynamic, right? You know, it created an interruption in our day-to-day experience. Like, yes, we were having a lot of fun. This was like a very beautiful aesthetic experience that we were participating in. But we were also kind of just like going through the motions, like looking at these photos. And then we see this random kid's face like smiling devilishly at us through, (laughs) through our phone. And it was this delightful interruption that just instantly created so much joy and laughter. That's artistry. Like, and and when I say artistry, I mean, in that instance with this boy, he figured out a way to create a funny, comedic, artistic interruption in people's phone experiences through his hidden selfies, right? He clearly was doing this all the time. A hundred other people could do this exact thing and it wouldn't necessarily be artistic right so the idea that anything can be art doesn't mean everything is but in this instance I was like dang you little artist you it was great and when my mother-in-law sent all of the photos to Jason and I she sent that boy's photo too because I want to remember that it was special and it's a small example but an important example of how the way that we move through life can be very artistic and creative if we choose it So that episode was about the way that we individually can be saved and then ultimately collectively saved by the art making process. But I wanted to talk about that topic today from a slightly different vantage point. How does the art we make save others in a more otherish kind of way, right? Like, the, you know, making art as a way to come home to ourselves and create delight for ourselves and to change the experience for others is important. But I think there's something interesting to be said about the ways that artists as a group are commenting and changing the cultural narrative on a much larger scale. And I kind of wanted to talk about that in Art Will Save Them. I, I, f- 
I feel like per usual in Secret Sauce, this is an amorphous way of me sort of walking around the topic. (laughs) And so let's sort of stop the ring around the rosy and go into the meat a little bit of this idea. I first started thinking about this a few weeks ago because Jason and I decided for our date night to go see a movie and, you know, nothing was really playing that we were excited about, but we were kind of intrigued by the Marvels. It it didn't get good reviews. I wouldn't recommend it. I mean, I didn't personally like it enough to recommend you necessarily to go see it. However, some of you listening to it might have seen it and loved it. Some of you might be considering seeing it and will still see it, even though I'm not a huge <laughs> fan of the movie. Um, but I'm glad we saw it because, you know, even though the story wasn't great and the character development wasn't there and the writing was kind of bu- a bummer, it got me to thinking a little bit about the ways that filmmaking, especially superhero movies, which is, by the way, a shared art form for Jason and I. Like Jason and I are very different in some ways, but we have a shared love for superhero movies and probably for different reasons. But one of the reasons that I'm so intrigued by superhero movies is because I feel like when you look at the arc of the way that superhero movies have changed in the past 100 years or however long they've really been around, not even just superhero movies, but superhero stories, which originally sort of started in more comic book form, It's an amazing example to show the way that artistry changes with the people and the collective culture it's trying to serve. And maybe this isn't an idea that every artist thinks about, but I do believe that even if artists aren't thinking about this consciously, on a deep level, all artists are serving humanity. That's like one of artistry's functions and and maybe it's we could argue that anyone working in any capacity is trying to serve others and one of the ways that artists I believe deeply serve humanity is by making parts of the subconscious experience of our collective cultural identity conscious And artists are exceptionally good at this because they're sensitive. I do believe all artists are sensitive and not sensitive in the boohoo kind of way, like sensitive in the, like, I feel everything, you know, I feel a pee through a hundred mattresses. Like artists are the ultimate princess in the pee. It's not that they're weak, which is, I think, how our culture loves to frame sensitivity, by the way, you know, our culture loves to frame sensitivity as a pejorative, as a weakness. And how disempowering is that for people where their sensitivity is actually the ultimate superpower? And artists feel things so deeply, they're able to feel things so far beneath the surface. And then because they can feel it, they can also then make things that bring that deep stuff to the surface and the conscious awareness of other people. I personally think that's one of the functions of artistry and and maybe some people listening to it are like hey Borelli I paint apples in a bowl there is nothing deep about doing that maybe I'm open to that I'm open to artists who 
have no deeper agenda, at least not consciously. But I do think, I do, I do want to gently make the argument that even for artists that are painting apples and bowls, there's something else going on there. I, you know, have a much more whimsical sort of spiritual feel to my style now, but, you know, prior to 2010, my artistic style was much more realistic and representational. You know, I was painting and drawing the ways that I had learned in school, you know, and that was very representationally. And in 2003, 2004, when I started to make art after college for other people, I was living in Miami, Florida at the time, and I was doing lots of paintings, actually. It was like the last time that I really consistently painted um, of South Florida, and I was very intrigued at that time with the trees down there. There's so many banyan trees down there, all of the roots like spilling all over the ground and the vines hanging everywhere and these gigantic trunks that you could never wrap your, you know, you would need like three or four people to wrap around and the undulating branches that create the most gorgeous shadows all over the streets. It was just, it was exceptionally beautiful. And I did a series of paintings of the trees. And again, like it maybe, you know, just like the artist who's painting apples, like I wasn't really thinking about anything deep at that time. I was like, hey, these shadows are freaking gorgeous and I want to reproduce them. You know, like that's what I was thinking about. And I remember one night I was I was working at like a little tapas restaurant um, in Coconut Grove at the time and I was serving there. But, you know, interestingly, it was also this little place that their catchphrase was food for the starving artist. And they would hire artists to paint like in the restaurant, like live painting. And this was in, this is much more popular now, by the way, live painting has become a thing. Right, but this was like 2003, 2004. This was a revolutionary idea. They had um, Brazilian dancers coming in and doing these dance performances in between, you know, diners eating and drinking at the tables. They had tarot card readers. They had all kinds of different, you know, bohemian type folks in there making things while others came in for food and drink. It was really, it was very different for that time. And I was, I felt so special to be a part of it. And so I would wait tables some nights and then other nights I would paint. And one night I had one of my banyan tree paintings in there. It was on display and I'd finished it. And a man came up and, and asked about it and he didn't end up buying it, but he, I you know I could tell he was considering it. And he said something to me that forever changed my perspective on artists who make things seemingly just for the sake of making them, right? Like if you're an artist who just loves painting flowers because they're flowers or loves painting fruit because it's fruit, this story is for you. So he he was looking, I mean, this this was a painting of trees only. There was nothing else in it. And he said, where did, where did you paint this? And, you know, I told him it was like a street nearby. And he said, wow, he goes, you know, I could have sworn just looking at this, that this was the street I grew up on. And I said, oh, yeah. And he goes, yeah, there's something about it. Like, it's not even like the physical trees themselves, but there's like an energy in here that just immediately makes me feel like I'm a little boy again. He's like, I freaking love growing up on that street. He goes, I miss it so much. 
And he said, you know, I can go back there anytime. It's not that far from this restaurant. He said, but you know, I can never get that time back. Like I can never be seven again. (laughs) And I I got it. Like he was saying like this painting, I feel like I'm seeing the trees as a seven-year-old again. And I never thought I would get that again. Like this is, this is special to me. And that was, that was him putting his finger on a thing that artists do that is very special, right? Like when else do we get to time travel? When else do we get to feel like we felt when we were young, except through art making? Um, yes, like for, for him, this painting made him feel like a seven-year-old boy in his home street. But like we've all had this experience, a lot of us with music, right? Where we hear a song that we haven't heard in 20 years and suddenly we're in high school. Like we, were, we, we feel our high school self in our bodies now that there's something about art that does that, that allows us to time travel in this really unique way. Even a bowl of apples can do that. So yes, I hear what some folks might be saying right now when it comes to having a deeper agenda around serving others, but we don't always get to choose the way our art serves other people. It's one of the beautiful things about art making. I went to the University of Texas for my graduate degree in art education, and there was a whole branch of the art education program that was specifically for those that wanted to work in art museums. And I actually partnered with the the University of Texas Blanton Art Museum to do my research, and I got pretty familiar with some of the things that was going on over there. And one of the things that really interest, interested me was that when they were curating different collections for the museum space and then ultimately you know putting up those cute little plaques that say this is the artist's name and this is the year that this artwork was made you know the informational boring stuff that some of us read and most of us don't I was used to when I was younger like in high school and junior high I was used to there being like a description of like what the artist was thinking and what the artist was trying to convey and I I noticed pretty quickly that the Blanton wasn't doing that. Like there was actually almost no information about the artwork at all. And I remember being kind of like, like, what am I supposed to think of this? You know, and I had a good friend who was working in the education department at the museum at the time. And she said, well, that's the point. Like we're actually removing some of the extraneous information from the artists because we want people to feel free to get more of what they are supposed to get from the work. If if you read what an artist is intending, that can be beautiful and helpful, but it also can constrict your experience with the artwork. And one of the coolest and most meaningful parts of experiencing an artwork is what does the artwork do for you? I had 0% intention of, of evoking nostalgia childhood nostalgia in anyone when I painted those trees for me it was about shadows you know and in some ways that's therein lies the power of art making so so I I you know so okay so like let's go back so yes apples they can be powerful but I do think a lot of us are intentionally trying to serve others and one of the things that's really interesting about superhero movies and and prior to that comic books and and storytelling in general 
is that there's themes in those narratives about power. And you can see the way that generation after generation was starting to shift the way it regarded power based on its superhero stories. And this this example is an apt one, but this happens in all different kinds of art forms, by the way, poetry, theater, sculpture, whatever. When some of the initial superhero stories were coming out with like Superman and stuff, superhero powers, power resided in the physicality of the body, right? Superman was muscular. He could run really fast. He could fly. That was, that was how the culture and humanity at the time was really interacting with the idea of power. Fast forward to the Marvel movies and Doctor Strange, some of these other DC movies were seeing power being wielded in much more metaphysical ways, much more magical ways, much more internal ways. We're also seeing superheroes that are not standalone rogue individual heroes. We're seeing groups that have to work together in order to have power. And it's it's really fascinating because when we when you look at artistry and you look at the way that artworks change, you can see the way that the consciousness of the planet is changing. And this is really comforting to me because it's showing the way that people are ready for the idea of invisible power and are ready for the ideas of collective power. I... So, you know, the Marvel movie was kind of like wah-wah, but it was interesting because she's like, you know, shooting these things out of her hands and flying all over the place. And I think at one point they like, there was a point in the movie and I, I, I'm not going to remember the phrase now, but they regarded Captain Marvel as a light worker, which blew my mind. For some of you listening to this, you've heard that phrase before. For some of you, maybe not, but like in metaphysical communities where... There's practicing mediums and practicing psychics and practicing energy workers. Using the term light worker is very common. Like it's it's a term that is applicable <laughs> in other realms other than superhero movies. And it's very interesting that Marvel is co-opting some of the language of metaphysical communities. And it's a sign that people are embracing these ideas more than ever. This, I share this for a couple of reasons. Part of the reason I wanted to share this example specifically is because I think there's a sense that sometimes the stuff that we make isn't part of something bigger. Like it can just feel so solitary. Even when I'm making art for a client, which is a much more team-oriented art-making process than just painting something for gallery. Even still, I'm alone almost the whole time that I'm making this thing. And there's a sense of being disconnected from something bigger than me. And that feeling of disconnection, I think, often leaves me, at least me, and I suspect those of you listening to this might be able to relate. It leaves me with the sense of what am, what is my artwork doing here? You know, I don't, I had that experience with the man in Miami 
sharing with me a piece of the way that my painting made him feel. But generally, most artists don't get that experience. A lot of you have made things that you've put out into the world and you'll never get to know. And that feeling of not knowing often is disorienting. It it sends specific messages that art is frosting, that art is not essential <laughs> to the human experience. Like, yes, it's nice. Yes, it's powerful. But like, at the end of the day, like, you know, doctors and lawyers are like the beef of society, right? Like, isn't that like sort of one of the stories that we've absorbed as kids, that there's certain modalities that just matter more, that are more core to what we're doing here. And yes, art is nice, but it's it's the top of the cake, you know? I think if we were able to start seeing the ways that the stuff that we make is part of a larger narrative, we would start to really understand the way that our bowl of apples is essential to what's happening right now. It is part of a larger story about what the fuck we're doing here in these human bodies running around this rock of earth and water. And so I love the superhero arc because, you know, I I feel like it's starting to show things that are that are also happening other places. Um, I've used this example on this podcast before, but painting prior to 1900 was very representational and very hyper realistic. And your your ability to reproduce reality as close to reality as possible was the metric to which you were held as a painter, you know. And then starting around the turn of the century these, the culture, I I would like to argue the culture was starting to shift the way that it looked at itself. That the surface of our bodies and the surface of nature wasn't our primary focus anymore. And subsequently, there were artists that were beginning to pick up on that under the surface of the collective and began reproducing those ideas in their paintings. And we started to see post-impressionist and post-impressionistic painters like Claude Monet and Vincent Van Gogh. And yes, these are white men, I get it. But they were starting to do things that were radically different than painters before them and got and got criticized deeply for doing it. You know, Vincent Van Gogh is, you know... And part of the reason that his story is so powerful is that he was poor his whole life and is now one of the most famous painters of all time and didn't get to enjoy a speck of that while he was alive. He was incredibly mentally ill. He, you know, would often choose to buy paint instead of food. You know, his life was not easy. And his paintings were considered sloppy and unrefined. And yet he was really capturing the beginnings of this new perspective in the collective around what it means to view the world. And he was very interested in, can I paint a night sky in the way that it makes me feel 
instead of the way that my eyeballs see it? Is there value in experiencing an artwork that has the attempt at visualizing a feeling instead of just visualizing a star? And the answer to that is yes, there's tremendous value. His, his ideas were ahead of his time. It, wasn't, it was many decades later that people started to absolutely freak out over his work. This is, you know, one of the gifts and struggles of being an artist is that often many of the ideas that we're excited about are just beginning to take root in the culture and we get to feel them first because we're sensitive to it. So I was thinking a lot about the Marvels and it was interesting to me because if we're talking about superhero movies and we're talking about the very beginnings of something new that perhaps some of these filmmakers are beginning to tap into and are beginning to try to tell stories about. One of the things I want to suggest is being brought into the consciousness of the collective more and more right now than ever before is this idea of internal power. And we're still seeing I we're still seeing these stories play out in a way that is much more culturally pal- culturally palatable, right? Like the Marvel movies are still very much about, you know, hero versus enemy, good guy versus bad guy. And we're still seeing the superheroes using their powers to destroy <laughs> bad so that good can prevail. Like those are also really culture, culturally appetizing ideas. But we're also seeing, and, and this is happening much less in the American market, but we're seeing stories coming out of Japan, especially, um, that are beginning to tell much more expansive stories around power. And in a way that is culturally uncomfortable, especially for Americans. I, I recently rewatched Princess Mononoke, which was um, one of the first American adaptations of the Japanese filmmaker. Um, oh my gosh, oh my gosh. <gasps> I'm going to blank out on his name. Look for the link in the show notes. I will include it in the show notes. <laughs> those of you those of you familiar, familiar with Japanese animation and Japanese filmmaking immediately are like, I know you're screaming the name of this filmmaker through the, the podcast at me. Um, but he, he was telling a very different kind of story. And for those of you that have watched Princess Mononoke, you can relate to what I'm about to share with you. Um, the story is unsettling. Um, and it, and I was listening to Neil Neil Gaiman is one of my artistic heroes. Some of you may be familiar with him. He's who wrote the story Coraline, and ultimately it became a film. He's also worked on many other films, and I've listened to commencement speeches he's given. He's just an excellent, wise voice around being an artist. And I, I read an interview um, 
where he described being the director of the American adaptation of Princess Mononoke. And being in a boardroom with a bunch of American film execs who just didn't get it because Princess Mononoke has no good guys and bad guys. There is like a central character who is definitely sort of the epitome of what the story is trying to push forward, but he's very flawed and and none of the characters in this movie are are simple. They're all multifaceted and they all do good things and bad things. And you don't even realize how much that kind of story pervades your consciousness until you experience one that doesn't. I like I love Princess Mononoke. I've watched it a few times and every time I watch it I find myself feeling a little uncomfortable even though it's a beautiful story. And the reason it's uncomfortable is because we for better or for worse in American storytelling want things to be black and white and there's these new veins of storytelling interestingly coming out of the east that are like yeah but that's not how the world is (laughs) and and there's these filmmakers that are making stories that are starting to reflect the culture's openness to that it's a sign that people are waking up to the nuance of humanity that people are becoming more comfortable with their own darkness and their own lightness, and so therefore are receptive to stories that do the same thing. If you haven't watched Princess Mononoke, you should. It's it's a beautiful story, and it's ultimately about the spiral and messiness of life. And there is a sense of resolution at the end of the story, but also you get the sense that there's just going to be a new beginning. You know, like when you watch American movies, there's this happily ever after vibe that is completely not present in Princess Mononoke. There's a sense that the story is going to keep continuing on without us. And I love that. I also love the animated Last of The Last Airbender Jason and I watched that whole series on Netflix twice because it was so good during the pandemic. And, you know, just I can't like, you know, my intention isn't to talk about the storyline or to tell you about that movie or to tell you about Princess Mononoke. You should watch You should watch any of these things to experience them for yourselves. But one of the things, one of the themes that came out of The Last of the Airbenders that was not not something I'd ever seen in any movie or any television series or any story prior was this idea that the good guy isn't defeating the bad guy. The good guy is healing the bad guy. I almost wept when I realized that someone created a whole show premised on an idea like that because that's a sign that the culture is ready for that idea too. These are, in my mind, examples of ways that art 
is saving them. Like that when we make stuff that is part of a larger macro creative event, like all of these movies that I've just talked about, we are making, we are making things visible and conscious that are just starting to percolate in the underlayers of the culture. And that gives me tremendous hope. Artistry is a tremendously hopeful practice, even when it's dark, even when like Princess Mononoke, by the way, for those of you that haven't watched it, it is not for children. Do not put it in front of your six-year-old. <laughs> it is violent. It is dark. It's hard to watch in certain scenes for sure, but also just generally kind of hard to watch. And and yet also it's such a hopeful movie. Even when art is very dark and full of despair, it's ultimately bringing something to the surface of the culture that the culture is ready to process. And it doesn't, you know, I suppose some people like that hearing that phrase would wonder, what does that even mean? The first thing I think of is an artist, and I'm not going to remember his name, but I remember how much negative <laughs> press he got in New York when he, and I want to say his show was at MoMA, but I can't remember for sure. He had a, a whole show of animals in case, like, like preserved animals <laughs> encased in these see-through cases. And like, I remember one of them was a cow. And I think many of them were like sliced open. So you could like see the whole inside. I don't, y'all, I don't even know if I remember correctly all of the details of this show, but I remember it was pretty grotesque and also really brought to the surface for a lot of people seeing this show. Like, what the fuck is this? Like, what does this have to do with art? Like, I, I don't like, this is just gross. And, and I don't understand it. It doesn't make any sense to me. It just really repulses me. And I, I'm angry. I feel anger that this artist is getting money and fame and and space to like put this into the physical public public sphere. Like, you know, there was just a lot of feelings about this. And all of those feelings were the artwork, right? Like what happens to you when you see a show like that is a part of the artwork, whether it feels good or not. I remember seeing an artist and and by the way this is like a perfect example of why I'm not the best art professor because I don't remember details at all <laughs> like if you talk to my husband he remembers like names and dates and places I'm not that way so I remember some names and sometimes some chronological information, but mostly not. I just remember like core ideas. <laughs> so I'm sharing those core ideas with the disclaimer that all of the extraneous um, Jeopardy-like information is completely stripped <laughs> from this podcast episode. But I remember um, watching a small 
news clip about a woman also doing a show out of New York. And she's probably a little more well-known than the one I just mentioned. And she did this performance art where she would sit in the gallery space and people would wait in line and they would come up and sit in front of her. And for a period of time, I don't remember if it was like one minute or 30 seconds or whatever, she would make unbroken eye contact with them. And once again, this type of performance art was met with skepticism and even anger from some people. Like, what does this have to do with anything? And yet, if you happened to be in the gallery at the time and watched this unfold, you would see these like really beautiful and interesting things happening to the people that were participating with her, namely lots of tears and weeping. And how interesting is it that when you make unbroken eye contact with somebody for, th- for a very short period of time, it brings forth so much stuff in you. That's the artwork. These are ideas that would never have flown a century ago. And they're like pervading the culture right now. This is, this is hugely hopeful. Like it's a sign that people all over the planet are ready to look at their insides in a way that they were never ready to look in the 1800s. You know, art in the art prior to 1910 or so was very surface. Is this thing, you know, follow the principles and elements of design? Does this thing look real? Does this is this thing mastery of technical skill? Like the, it was it was about object. Art was a vase then. <laughs> it was only that. It was only that. And it's only been in the last 100 years or so that we've started to see this huge shift in the types of art that people are making, which indicates a huge shift in the ways that humans are in consciousness, honestly. It feels like the opposite, doesn't it? Which I suppose is one of my goals for this episode. It feels like we're going down the mountain right now. It feels like everything's getting bad, 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 bad. And there's like a beautiful sentiment that's sort of started circulating the internet, especially, you know, five, six years ago. And that is things aren't necessarily getting worse. They're just getting uncovered. And so stuff like the cancer of our culture that was just like festering under the surface in the 1940s and 1950s and when everything seemed to be perfect here in America or or wherever, suddenly we're seeing the stuff in front of us. That's like one of the functions of artistry is making the invisible visible. Interestingly, superhero movies are increasingly making invisible concepts like power visible. And they're doing it in ways that are, you know, kind of like simplistic, like lightning bolts shooting out of someone's hands, like cool. Doctor Strange was like a really interesting step forward. The Last of the Airbenders was an interesting step forward instead of like having these like colorful things like shooting out of 
human hands. It was more about energy. And that is an idea that is increasingly pervading the zeitgeist right now. Um, Going to see an energy worker just 20 years ago would have been considered what? I remember when I was in my undergrad, I my mentor, who is now a dear friend and possibly listening to this episode right now, was was telling me how she was, you know, a certain level certified in Reiki. And I'd never heard of Reiki before. I was 23. I was like, what? And her partner at the time was also certified and they would do energy work on each other remotely, like when they weren't in the, even in the same city. And that idea was blasphemous to me. I, I, I met it, I met it with such with such disregard initially. I was like, I don't, I don't even believe that. Like I, cool. I'm glad you believe it. I don't believe it. And now as someone who's been on the receiving end of energy work for the past five years, I have to tell you, it's such a thing and it's becoming more and more of a thing than ever before. Even people that have no desire to do energy work or don't have any plans on doing energy work have heard of it. It is so much more common now. And we're seeing this being reflected in our art making in all different ways. But, you know, for this podcast, for the sake of this podcast episode, I wanted to do it around the framework of something we're all pretty exposed to, and that's Marvel and DC movies, <laughs> you know? I'm very curious in 10 years from now what those movies are going to look like. Because to me, just watching their evolution in the past five years has been really interesting. We're seeing, you know, like, yeah, like Superman and Batman, they were like flawed, right? Like they were like flawed and like this dark, like mysterious, stay away from me kind of way, or at least Batman was. And then like Superman was like, you know, pretending to be someone he wasn't. And, you know, his kryptonite was this weird rock, you know, <laughs> like, and those ideas of flaws, you know, that that was the level of flawed human nature that the culture could handle at that time. Now we're seeing characters coming out of these movies that are really messed up, that have deep flaws, that are really undesirable. And baked into these storylines are these really multifaceted characters that get to be really beautiful and really messed up at the same time. We're starting to see movies like Princess Mononoke where whole storylines get to be not good or bad. This is huge and I'm so excited for what's to come. But one of the reasons I suppose and one of the ideas I suppose I want to leave with you listening to this is that if you're making paper crafts at home or you're writing poems for a blog or if you're sketching some ideas for a screenplay (laughs) as arbitrary as that can feel as disconnected as that can feel you are part of this bigger thing this this bigger thing has its hooks in what you're making with or you want it to or not. It's why I can paint a picture of shadows and trees and have it move a stranger almost to tears. Like that's, 
that's what happens when you put stuff out there. It becomes part of this bigger sauce, (laughs) this secret sauce. And that sauce is swirling around every one of us. And it's why a painting that I make can soup into this random dude in the middle of Miami, Florida, who, by the way, this was not a guy, like maybe this is worth saying. It's why it's popping in my head to share it. I remember not even really liking the energy of this guy. Like he had kind of that bro energy, like, you know, he, his, his collar wasn't popped, but he was like the kind of guy that would pop the collar back in the two thousands, you know, like, very tan, frosted tips, like very, you could tell he was kind of like trying to hide insecurities by talking in a certain way and like holding his arms out a little bit too far. And he wasn't, he wasn't the type of energy that I connected with well at all. And yet here we were having this vulnerable, vulnerable moment between the two of us because of this painting. That's the soup working. It's magic, right? That's my art getting to be part of something bigger. And that's the way art saves them. It's the way that the stuff that you make saves them, whether you want it to or not. And so take some of the ideas in this episode and think about that when you're thinking about what you're, what the fuck are you doing here? And yes, like the F word is important in this in this sentiment what the fuck are you doing here if you're just painting apples like good luck with having the motivation to keep doing it all the time you know what is the bigger thing that's happening here and it doesn't mean that when you're painting apples you have to be thinking about the person you're going to move to tears potentially someday later hardly Perhaps you're just thinking about the shiny reflections on the surface and the shadows of the reds and greens and yellows or whatever. But there's something about the way that you are engaging with those principles and elements that then goes out into a bigger thing and does something in the world that you don't get to control which is also one of the scarier things about making stuff is that, you know, mostly in this episode, I've been talking about the ways that stuff goes out there and has positive repercussions. But there's been a few times in this episode that, you know, I've talked about the ways that your stuff can go out there and piss everyone off and make them angry. It was one of my biggest fears making this podcast is that I have no control over what happens between your two ears when you listen to the shit I have to say. (laughs) And some of the most helpful people, by the way, some of the most creative and revolutionary thinkers that have helped me tremendously in my lifetime have also really pissed me off. I feel like they kind of go hand in hand. And I know that nobody wants to Nobody wants to know that the thing that they made caused someone else stress or discomfort or anger, but especially not me. Like I, I especially feel uncomfortable with that idea and so much so that I'm now 43 and just beginning to share some of the most important ideas that I've had all of my life. Like that's how long it's taken me to have the courage 
and the energy and the wherewithal to, to share any of this stuff. It's, it's simple but not easy to put yourself and the work that you make into the soup because the soup is rogue and you have no idea what it's going to do. But ultimately, ultimately, it gets to be a part of this tremendous shift that is happening because that's that's what artistry does. Um, artistry is always at the beginning of the push. And I would be remiss to suggest that this is a glorious or glamorous, you know, experience for all people. You know, perhaps some of the folks at Pixar or some of these bigger film studios may experience some of the more positive effects of some of these stories and some of these new technologies around storytelling. But there's other people that are making things right now that are having more of a Vincent van Gogh experience where their ideas are completely not resonating with the collective. They feel like they're the things that they love to make are not doing anything. <laughs> and that's painful and hard and very difficult and it's one of the reasons why if you go back and listen to art will save us finding some of those core root reasons to make things specifically coming home to yourself and making yourself feel excellent right the ways that you would make things even if no one liked it that's the type of energy, that's the type of identity that keeps artists making stuff even when it's not being received the way that they wish it would. It's why Van Gogh painted his whole life and sold like two paintings or something ridiculously low. It's why I've finally found a rhythm with this podcast. It's why I've been able to sit down and record you know, and stockpile episodes the past month or two because I finally hit the groove where my reason for doing this podcast has nothing to do with how it's received anymore and everything to do with how it makes me feel to speak these ideas so that they don't just sit and rot in my brain it make it'll make you crazy <laughs> i'm not sure if this idea was communicated perfectly, but I was excited to share bits of it in the hope that it creates a larger framework for, for when you go to sit down in front of your notebook, in front of your pad of paper, in front of your piano, whatever. And it may not make the process of creating any less scary or in fact, it may in some ways make the process more scary, <laughs> this whole episode. But but I'm hoping that in some ways, small or big, you get to think about your presence in a movement that is happening right now and your importance in it, even if you're not aware or even if it's not clear to you. That type of thing helps me tremendously. Um, it's grounding to know that I'm not just 
me and my drawings and my podcasts aren't just like floating out into the ether doing nothing. That they're actually part of a connected soup that is moving humanity forward and doing things that are profound and expansive beyond my initial intention. Yeah. I love y'all. I hope you are getting ready for a lovely holiday. Some of these episodes have been sort of leading up to a new year and I'm excited to expand on some of the ideas that I've been publishing the last month or so because there's so much to unpack around some of these ideas and I'm excited to start sharing hopefully some coursework and some workshops and some opportunities to connect more around some of these ideas so stay tuned in the meantime I hope you have to to the extent possible you have a, a meaningful holiday it doesn't mean perfect. I know how the holidays can be really beautiful for some people and really hard for for many. But I'm hoping that there's little nuggets of meaning that you get to enjoy in this time because we are we're wrapping up a cycle and a whole new year is starting. And I'm hoping that the last remnants of this artwork year are meaningful to you even if they're not necessarily enjoyable until i i think we're gonna have one more ep- one more episode um potentially before the end of the year and I, so so on that note next tuesday there will be no episode because i am going to be out in holiday land with my family but um, I will be posting the following week, so stay tuned. And then we're going to hit 2024 together. I'm so excited about it. Housekeeping came at the end instead of at the beginning. So thank y'all. If you're listening to this, thank you for listening to the whole episode. Until next time, peace. <laughs>